Thank you very much for uh, inviting me to speak. You know, exceptionalism doesn't mean preeminence. It's a Latin word, ex kippere. It's analogous, etymologically speaking, to select or different. They're the same concept in Latin. It means to take something from the, the majority and take it away. It can be bad or good, but what it means is that the United States is weird. It's odd. It's different. It's not like most nations. And I thought uh, I recall this famous quote by Cicero. He said in a famous speech that Rome was powerful because it had a lot of money. He meant that the military uh, is based on money. He called it the nervi belly, the, the sinews of war and foreign influence and power are predicated on domestic stability and the ability to create capital. And it's true as much today as it was 2,000 years ago. There are certain building blocks that we look throughout history and we say this society did it well, this society did not do it well, therefore this society had military power and influenced people beyond its borders. One, of course, is demography. Does a society grow or is it static? If we look at the industrial world today, and that's the best source of comparison, until very recently we were about 1.9 replacement, sometimes 2.1, even without immigration. We've gone a little bit below that now, but compared to Germany, 1.3, or Japan, 1.4, or China, 1. we are a young nation. And, and demography is based on confidence, and it's, I, I'll be candid with you, a sense of transcendence, that you plant an olive tree and you know it will not produce in your lifetime, but you have property rights, you have confidence in the future, and your children will enjoy it. And uh, the United States is a more religious country. It believes in transcendence. The Greeks said that uh, you change your diapers so your children will change yours. And if you rely on the state to do it, you're not going to have children, as a socialist country discourages uh, fertility. Also, we're diversity. Uh, we always talk and brag about diversity. It's a little bit more complicated than that. Throughout history, diversity has been the, ba the great bane of civilizations. It's been a disadvantage. Japan and China are very powerful countries. They're not all that diverse. So diversity was a challenge to be overcome, not an innate advantage. And yet we're the only country that's a truly multiracial society. Until recently, we had one culture, and that was unique in history. We don't go back and look at the Austria-Hungary uh, situation, or we don't look at Serbia and expect Serbian leaders or Austro-Hungarians in the early 20th century said, wow, we're strong because we're diverse. Uh, Iraq didn't say, we're strong because we have Kurds and Shia and Sunni. They always thought that was a liability. We're the only country that turned that liability into a plus. Another building block of, of education, let's get elemental, is food, food and fuel, whether you're talking about pasturage or oil. And do you, do you remember just 30 years ago, people talked about this phrase, peak oil, that in 2005, 2010, uh, there would be less oil left than had already been exploited. And especially in the case of the United States, by now, I think we were supposed to be importing 70% of our oil needs. We're the only country that really flipped it around, not just because the United States is, sits on very naturally endowed soil, but because we're one of the few in the West, it has property rights and a confidence in its private sector, and we encourage innovation and audacity in the private sector in a way that, unfortunately, Europe does not. 
So we now are, we can be easily, if we wish to be, the world's greatest coal exporter. We're self-sufficient in natural gas. We may be exporting natural gas. We're self-sufficient in oil. Uh, that's a great advantage. It's same as true of agriculture. I was looking at a Wall Street Journal article about 15 years ago that said we would be a net food ex importer by now. We're not. We're still exporting food all around the world from beef to rice to perishable goods to uh, dried fruit. Somehow the private sector in the United States has, able, has been able to squeeze additional production per acre in a way that had always been foretold. You can't get any more products out of that acre. It's just, it, it's finite. And we proved that agriculture is infinite. We're the only country in the world that do that. So when you have food and you have fuel and you have demography, you have advantages. But we also have education. Uh, if you look at the, I mentioned this before to you, that the Times Educational Supplement or the University of Tokyo, these are foreign, not domestic uh, arbiters of educational excellence. Usually in these studies of the top 20, top 30 universities in the world, the United States has about 90% of them and the educational supplement that uh, the Times publishes. Out of the top 20, California has more itself than any other country, five, uh, Caltech, Stanford, Berkeley, UCLA, and USC. So in key areas such as business, medicine, engineering, computer, uh, and, uh, computer engineering, we are preeminent in the world, not just exceptional, but preeminent. That gives us an enormous advantage as well. In terms of economic power, uh, even today in our so-called descendants, we have about 320, 330 million people producing almost twice as many goods and services as China, the next largest economy. In rough terms, if we could just, I know that my economic colleagues would disagree, but I'm so inexact, but basically one American worker is producing twice as many goods and services as three Chinese workers today. And it's not just because of technology, but a rule of law, constitutionality, a tradition of uh, the ability of labor and capital to get along. So when we look at all of these different factors, historically, then they translate into greater military power, which translates into greater influence in the world and what we call exceptionalism abroad. So our military, depending on which standard, and again, it's controversial, probably has a budget that's larger, at least in the next 15 budgets in aggregate. And it, when it didn't do that, as was true in 1914 or 1939, it had the ability to do it. So if we look at the 20th century, all of these unique attributes that we take for granted ended up in really, as I said earlier, odd or bizarre things, exceptional things. So we, World War I comes along, we sit out, we don't want any part of this entangling alliance. As the founders told us, don't go slay dragons abroad. And suddenly in 1917, Woodrow Wilson takes us to war. Military is 150,000 people. It's basically a front, frontier force that, that's fossilized in the uh, frontier of the 19th century. Between April of 1917 and November of 1918, 20 months, the U.S. military creates a new force of two million soldiers and is able to transport them all the way to the shores of France without losing one soldier in transit. The idea that the Imperial German Army, the greatest army really in the history of military conflict up to that time, could have transported two million Germans and landed them on the east coast of the United States is absolutely absurd. 
Only the United States could have done that because of its economic power, its technology, and its political stability. And the odd thing is that we entered the war with no munitions industries to speak of. In 20 months, we were producing more artillery shells in France and Britain, who'd been at it for four years, combined. It's really exceptional when you think of that. Now, the same thing happened in 1939. We said, no more. We're going to stay out of it. We had an army smaller than Portugal's in 1939. And uh, we were the 18th in military expenditures. We had a good navy, but 18th otherwise. When we came in late to the war in December 7, uh, 11th of 1941, after Pearl Harbor four days earlier, in a mere four years, that military had grown to 12 million point two. We only had a population of 160 million people. So the Soviet Union had 180. It was the largest military in the history of warfare at 12.5 million. It's just incredible. We had this idea that Americans don't want to mobilize, that the United States with that population base could mobilize over 12 million people. By the end of the war, the United States that really did not have a munitions industry at all. We were spending about 1% of our budget on defense in 1938. The GDP of the United States by 1945 was roughly the same as what Italy's had been, which had gone out of the war. But Italy, the Third Reich, and the Third Reich wasn't just Germany. It was all of what is now the European Union. Japan and Great Britain, our ally, and the Soviet Union, our ally, combined. Think of that. 600 airframes, 600,000 airframes were produced in World War II. We produced 400,000 of them. We produced 90% of the aviation fuel in World War II. I could go on and on, but you get the impression that when these unique attributes that I talked about, fuel, food, agriculture, fuel, education, demography, when they're combined under a political stable system, then you can do unique things abroad. In the Cold War, the great issue was how do you stop 500 divisions of the Soviet Union overrunning Europe? And the same would be true in Asia. So we step up, and after basically dismantling our military by the time of the Korean War, uh, we were able to stop uh, the Red Army from going south of the 38th parallel, at least permanently south. Secretary Rice last night outline this post-war order, it's very, very strange that any time in the history of the world, one particular country would step up and create an economic, uh, political, cultural, global system that would allow its former enemies, such as Germany and Japan, to excel uh, under rules of trade and commerce that it sanctioned and enforced with its uh, military while it was at war de facto with the Soviet Union. It's quite extraordinary. We haven't taken anybody's territory through conquest since the Philippines in 1898. Uh, I'm named after uh, Victor Hansen, who died with the 6th Marine Division in Okinawa on Sugarloaf Hill, May 19, 1945. And I was reading his letters the other day, and he talks about he didn't want to be there, but he had to be there. And once we took Okinawa from the Japanese, we gave it back to them. No other country does that. When Russia took the Sakhalin Islands, it kept them. After, and they're still in dispute with Japan. So we created this uh, post-war order in the fashion that we had helped to win World War I and World War II. And uh, where we stumbled, and I'm thinking now in particular in Iraq in 2011, 
and in Vietnam in 1975, I think you could make the argument that they were militarily successful enterprises, but politically we either lost the will or the confidence to garrison them in the way that we had during the Korean War. I look at Iraq in 2011 as I do um, South Korea about 1956. Can you imagine if Dwight Eisenhower up for re-election in 1956 for the price of a cheap campaign talking point said, I'm going to get all troops out of South Korea. It wasn't my war. I didn't start it. Harry Truman did it. We've been there four years. That's enough. It's quiet. There's nobody on the 38th parallel now. Let's get out. You can imagine where Samsung and Kia would be today. They would not exist. So when we lost uh, Iraq or we lost uh, Vietnam, I think those were decisions. They were not inevitable that we made. Now, the great criticism of this post-war system is that it's imperial or neo-colonial, and it, that's a reflection, not empirically, we don't look at evidence and say, well, the United States' empire is less moral than what the Soviet Union's was, or less than the Ottomans, or less than the British. It's a symptom that, given our leisure and affluence, we have the luxury to dream that if we are not perfect, then we're not good, or that the the, better put, maybe, the sins of humankind, and humans are not very nice pe creatures, are they? They're racist, they're sexist. Just look at the world beyond our borders. But we felt that the sins of humankind are ours alone. That's not true. So we were hyper-self-critical in the Western tradition, but even more so in the American tradition because we were wealthier and more leisure than any society and civilization, and we had the margin of error, so to speak, to be hypercritical of us that was not in, in a manner that we did not extend to other societies. Now, is this something that we feel we've reached the end of history? All the great historical issues of the past are over with. We are market capitalists. We're de Democrats with constitutional stability. Therefore, it's fated that we will continue to be exceptional. I don't think so. What if we just for the last six or seven minutes did everything that I've talked to in reverse? Let's look at these building blocks that create exceptional power overseas. Look at education. Yes, we're still preeminent, but the American university, to be frank, is starting to resemble the medieval university. If we were at the University of Padua, just to take one great university in the Middle Ages, and they're mostly Western phenomena, in 1100, if you were to suggest, even though they made enormous strives in medieval technology, quite, quite astounding, we, we don't give the medieval period enough credit, but if you were at the University of Padua in 1100 and you said in a treatise that you didn't really think that the sun revolved around the earth, you thought the earth revolved around the sun, you would be in big trouble. You wouldn't be allowed to publish it. I think today if you were at Stanford University and you were up for tenure and you wrote a paper suggesting that there was some evidence that the earth had not heated up in 17 years, or if it did, you didn't think that global warming was an existential threat, or if you thought it was an existential threat, you didn't think that massive outlays and government expense would be necessary to arrest it, you would not be given tenure. So I think there are areas in the university today that are starting to be very medieval, and if that continues, I don't think we're going to, that will eventually, uh, I should say, translate into our business schools, our science and engineering. Anytime you stifle free speech and inquiry for whatever noble perceived reason, it's gonna have an effect as it did uh, in the past. 
demography-wise, I'm a little worried. I've been reading the WikiLeaks, and I saw that uh, Hillary Clinton said of Bernie Sanders supporters, well, they're just a bunch of guys that live in their parents' basement, and they're suffering from prolonged adolescence. And I must confess, in this case, I almost agree with her that uh, the demography rate has gone from 2.1, and some years it's down to about 1.6. And we have a, whether it's economics, or whether it's culture, or whether it's sociology or politics, we have a new cohort that is not confident that the old American paradigm that you and your partner, you and your spouse, whatever particular arrangement you have, and you buy a home, and then you think you're going to have two or three children in your 20s, and then they're, et cetera, et cetera. That idea is not the norm anymore, as you know from your family and mine. And that's going to have significant repercussions apart, along uh, demographical lines as they pertain to the military. It already is. Diversity, I mentioned, has always been a challenge rather than an innate advantage, and I'm very worried because not only are we dividing into blue states and red states, uh, but two coastal corridors corridors of elites, everybody else in between. Uh, We're a hyphenated population. We're an accentuated population. I am in a multiracial family. My siblings are married to people of Uh, Mexican-American ancestry, and I can see it in my own family that we're not... The idea of e pluribus unum is considered passe as long... uh, along with the melting pot. It's more the salad bowl. You look at the NFL, Colin Kaepernick, whatever it is, it suggests that an increasing number of people do not believe in the unity of the United States, and when that happens, unfortunately, history doesn't give us much leeway. It's happened to a lot of countries where sectarianism, it happened to ourselves in 1861. If that should happen then, and I think it is already happening, and it's starting to affect the military, it's starting to affect our uh, vibrant position overseas. If we look at uh, fuel, it doesn't really do much good if we're not going to use the technology and the property rights and the culture of can-do optimism. In other words, if we can't build a pipeline, or we decide that the nuclear power is uh, inferior to solar power, or we must use government subsidies in the manner of Germany to go wind and solar and neglect clean-burning natural gas for largely ideological rather than necessarily uh, fact-based research, then there's no reason why we would not go the way of Europe and be a net food, uh, excuse me, a net um, energy importer. I was driving, as many of you were last night, and I was leaving my farm in Central California, driving on Manning Avenue, right across the west side, and the wind was up about 60 miles an hour at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and believe me, it reminded me of pictures of the Great Dust Bowl. And the reason was is that about a million acres had been taken out of production uh, because they were short three or four million acre feet of contracted irrigation water. Many of you in this audience uh, have made a livelihood in farming, producing food for other people. But when people don't appreciate the tragedy and the, the hardship inherent in agriculture, and they feel that they can let out four million acres on the theory, it is a theory, that the Delta smelt needs more oxygenated water in the Delta, and then it comes at the expense of that farmland, there are repercussions. If that were to spread, uh, it reminds me about 1960 when, a little, when I was a little boy and my parents said, we're going to go out to the west side and shoot coyotes, but 
wear a handkerchief because it's a dust bowl out there and valley fever's in the air in the fall. And it, it was the same situation. So our agricultural preeminence is dependent upon uh, realizing our limitations. Agriculture is predicated on living one more day. One more day, that's all it is. Getting enough food to go from day one. If you reach a period where you think you're exempt from na nature's laws and you can have 330 million people and take a million acres out of a production because of some theory about a bait fish, then all the agricultural expertise and these brilliant farmers won't help you at all. If we look at uh, education then, food, fuel, diversity, demography, these, these suggest that we have challenges. And we look at the military, I said it might, the budget might encompass all of the other competing militaries, one to 16, one to 18, I read different figures, but if you look at the percentage of the present day military and you compute salaries, retirement, and health care, we're spending anywhere from 25 to 30 percent of our total military budget in a way that the Chinese and the Russians are not. So even if China, just to take a figure out of the air, was spending 170 million versus our 580, excuse me, billion, our 580 billion, they're not, they may be, in fact, much closer to technological purchases or investments in high-tech weaponry than we are as a percentage of their military budget and, their mili and you know their economy is growing. So it's not preordained that if you start to ossify or calcify in terms of education or agriculture or fuel or demography or even your political stability that I mentioned earlier, if you have executive orders or you have uh, 300 entities that are sanctuary cities that decide federal law doesn't apply to us on immigration issues, then in theory, there's nothing to stop Cody, Wyoming from saying, I like sanctuary cities. No gun registration will apply within Cody. Or Provo, Utah could say, you know what? I don't like the Endangered Federal Species Act. In the environs of Provo, Utah, it just doesn't apply. It's a sanctuary city. I mean, we, this is the nullification crisis of 1826 or the neo-Confederate idea of 1860, and that unwinds a republic, and that will have ramifications to our military and abroad. Let me just finish then by suggesting that this post-war order that uh, Secretary Rice so eloquently outlined last night is not a preordained fact. It's an oddity. It's based on the idea that a country today of only 330 million people would have such inordinate military power and diplomatic influence based on its educational, its energy, its agriculture, its political stability, its demographic stability, etc. And for the first time in my life, I think there were people who thought that if we were to withdraw and not to use these innate advantages, or indeed we felt these innate advantages at home were no longer advantages and we should scale back agriculture, scale back energy, reformulate the university, reformulate the executive branch, the constitutional. It wouldn't have that much effect, but I think as you're seeing, once the United States uh, abdicates abroad, then we outsource stability to different regional hegemonies. The Russia in the area that was once the former Soviet Union, China and the South uh, China Seas, uh, Iran and the Persian Gulf, ISIS in the Middle East, and the problem with that is that historically there's no evidence in any of these entities have ever had a history of disinterested, uh, at least to the degree that we've been disinterested, world leadership. And I'd like to finish with just a thought. 
I've talked about material conditions that give you military preeminence and exceptional, exceptional role abroad, but it's a lot up here. It's psychological. Decline is not, uh, it's, it's not fated. It's usually, it's usually a choice. Um, I look at the Greek city-state, and I spent most of my life writing about the Greek city-state. For the life of me, I, I'm 63, and I can't answer this question. Think about it for a minute. In 480 BC, the 1,000 Greek city-states were faced with an existential threat. They were, very, they were very poor. Democracy was only 27 years old. A quarter million Persians were coming through Thessaly to destroy Greece as they knew it. And they stopped them for three days at Thermopylae. They stopped them and defeated the fleet at Salamis, and they defeated the Persian army at Plataea a year later. Fast forward 150 years later, they had a threat from the north again. But unlike their ancestors, the Greeks now were very powerful. Their armies and navies were much larger than their great-grandparents. And the threat from the north was Philip of Macedon. We think, wow, Alexander Philip. But compared to the Persians, he was a two-bit thug. He never put in the field more than 30,000 men. And yet he, he defeated the Greek city-states at Chaeronea, and within 10 years, they didn't exist as a free people. Same thing was true of Rome. Hannibal was an existential threat in a series of battles between 219 and 216, a very poor, let me emphasize poor, agrarian Italian republic lost 100,000 men in battle, which was a quarter of their population, and yet they defeated Hannibal. Fast forward 500, 600 years, I should be more exact, 650 years later, now Rome is not one quarter of the Italian peninsula, but it encompasses 70 million people, one million acres of territory, and yet they cannot stop a threat from the north of what in the past would be called, again, thugs, viscos, oscos, vandals, huns. By any historical measure, they were not the threat of Hannibal. So what am I getting at? Why are we withdrawing from the world? Why do the Greeks, who were much richer, fight much less effectively? Why do the Romans have much less confidence the more wealthy and the more powerful others deem them? Because it's up here. If you get up in the morning collectively and you believe that you're not better than the alternative, if you believe you're not better than the alternative, or if you get into a mindset that you must be perfect or you're not any good, then history says, okay, time's out, your time is over, and you're over with. Thank you very much.